There are quite a few treatment options for von Willebrand disease, and it really does vary on what really the bleeding phenotype is, or when we say that, we mean how the patient bleeds, and on the actual type of the von Willebrand disease. Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organization or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to hemostasisoncore2ed.com. Hello and welcome to this podcast on the treatment of von Willebrand disease. I'm Dr. Jonathan Roberts. I am a hematologist at a hemophilia treatment center in uh, central Illinois in the United States. And I'm here with my colleague, Anna. Hello, everybody. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you for the introduction. I'm Professor Anna Boban. I'm adult hematologist working in Zagreb in Croatia, and I'm dealing mostly with patients with coagulation disorders. So we are here today because we want to talk to you about Willebrand disease. The guidelines that tell us that Willebrand disease require individualized treatment. But on the other hand, the high certainty evidence to guide decision-making is quite limited. So we are going to share some of our clinical experience with you to help you to manage von Willebrand disease. So we'll focus on the impact of the different types of von Willebrand disease on treatment decisions that we make on a daily basis. Uh, and then we'll talk about some other treatment options and some clinical scenarios for how we manage von Willebrand disease. So first, let's talk about the different types of von Willebrand disease. So there's types 1, 2, and 3. And briefly, type 1 von Willebrand disease is the most common form. It's about 80% of cases of von Willebrand disease. And quite simply, it's just a lack of the von Willebrand factor protein. So I describe to patients that von Willebrand factor is a protein that's kind of like Velcro for your platelets. It helps to stick those platelets to the site of injury binds to platelets, binds to collagen. And when there's an injury to a blood vessel, it really helps to start the coagulation process so the bleeding will stop. So patients with type 1 von Willebrand disease simply have a lack of protein. And it can quite vary in degree of severity to how much of that protein they're missing. Type 2 von Willebrand disease, there's many different subtypes, type 2A, B, M, and N. And they can all vary in the quality or the functionality of the von Willebrand factor protein, how it does its job. So sometimes the von Willebrand factor level's not quite as low, but it's a dysfunctional protein. In particular, there's type 2B von Willebrand disease that also can be associated with patients having low platelets. And this can come into play when we talk about different treatment options we have for von Willebrand disease um, that we'll talk about further on in this discussion. Type 3 von Willebrand disease is the most severe form where patients essentially make no von Willebrand factor at all. And these patients can have the most severe types of bleeding, bleeding into muscles and joints, very similar to patients with severe hemophilia. So before we dive into it, um, Anna, do you want to briefly recap on the key elements of treatment of von Willebrand disease? Yes, of course, Jonathan. So as you mentioned, Willebrand disease have quite different presentation, quite different bleeding. So we do not have the same treatment options for all of the patients. So first we have these hemostatic drugs, which are drugs that control the bleeding. And we use a couple of different approaches in Willebrand disease. So one of the most commonly used is antifibrinolytics or tranexamic acid, which decreases fibrinolysis in that way, stops bleeding, especially mucosal bleeding, so bleeding into the skin and the mucous membranes. And it's quite easy to use. It can be used orally as a tablet or intravenously. 
It doesn't have lots of side effects, so patients can really take it for a long time without any problems. If you have major bleeding, or then you have to think about raising levels of filibrin factor, which can be done in two ways. We can do it by desmopressin or DDAVP. It's one specific drug that increases the endogenous levels of filibrin factor by releasing it from its physiological stores, which is called the vibral palladium bodies in the endothelial cells. In this way, this filibrin factor is moved from the endothelial cells to the blood system and the level is increased. But if you need treatment of some big trauma, heavy bleeding surgery or type 3 patients, then we need to use factor filibrin factor concentrates. So there are also various types of concentrates. Some of them consist only of filibrin factor, some of them filibrin factor plus factor 8, and they can be given intravenously. And the levels of factor 8 and filibrin factor should be monitored in these patients. But besides these measures, we use some other drugs. For example, we use oral uh, hormonal treatment for reducing the heavy menstrual bleeding during the menstruation. And we use iron supplements for treating iron deficiency anemia because iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia are very common in patients with Willebrand disease and even maybe the first symptom or first sign that would bring the patient to see a hematologist. So then if we move further and go to the key question of this podcast, Jonathan, what roles does the type of disease play in your clinical decision-making? So are there any treatments to trend to avoid in certain types of the disease? Thanks. That's a very good question. So as you mentioned, there are quite a few treatment options for von Willebrand disease, and it really does vary on what really the bleeding phenotype is, or when we say that, we mean how the patient bleeds, and on the actual type of the von Willebrand disease. So for example, of the treatment options you mentioned, desmopressin or DDAVP that can be given as a nose spray or subcutaneous or intravenous works by helping to raise the natural levels of von Willebrand factor and factor eight released from the endothelial cells in the lining of your blood vessels. So because of that, certain subtypes of von Willebrand disease are, it's not recommended to treat with DDAVP uh, because it doesn't work or it's not safe. So for example, in type 3 von Willebrand disease, because there is really no production of von Willebrand factor at all, if you would give the DDAVP, essentially it would not work. There would be no release of von Willebrand factor because the patient cannot make von Willebrand factor at all. It still would make some factor 8. Um, it's important to know that factor 8 and von Willebrand factor uh, work together in circulation. Von Willebrand factor is the chaperone protein, but in the absence of von Willebrand factor, essentially there's no factor 8. So you may make factor 8 levels rise, and they're immediately going to go back down, and it won't help you stop bleeding. The other is type 2B von Willebrand disease. As I mentioned earlier, that can be associated with low platelets. And so if you would give DDAVP in that situation, you actually could activate more platelets and make the platelet count lower and make the patient more at risk for bleeding. So, you know, the, the decision of what to use is really something between the clinician, the physician or nurse practitioner, physician assistant, and the patient. So as, as Anna mentioned, the antifibrinolytics that help to stabilize the clot they are oral and that can be very useful for minor bleeding. So if the patient has minor bleeding, for example, as a first line treatment for heavy menstrual bleeding, commonly we will use tranexamic acid to help prevent the breakdown of the, of the clot. So I describe it to patients as a clot stabilizing medicine. 
And then if the bleeding is more significant, you know, we use DDAVP if it's possible, um, or the von Willebrand factor concentrates, um, as she mentioned, that would directly replace any missing von Willebrand factor. I think using the von Willebrand factor concentrates can be most important in situations where you really need to make sure hemostasis is occurring, like with surgeries or other major bleeding, a woman delivering a baby, things like that. So why don't we go through and now discuss a few clinical situations to kind of give everyone an example of how we as clinicians would make a treatment decision if someone with von Willebrand disease came in with a spontaneous bleed. Well, thank you, Jonathan. So spontaneous bleeds are the most common presentation of a Willebrand disease, and surely it will be the most common cause why the patient wants to see you. And then, of course, you have to evaluate what kind of of bleeding is that because spontaneous bleeding can be quite mild, so a mild bruising. But on the other hand, it can be really major bleeding, life-threatening bleeding that really requires immediate immediate action. So when you're assessing a patient, so beside di- having diagnosed which type of Willebrand disease it is or which subtype of type two, you have to look into the levels of factor eight factors uh, levels of Willebrand factor, but also personal history of the disease. So some patients have really mild clinical presentation, even some patients with type 3 disease. On the other hand, some patients with type 1 have really heavy phenotype of the bleeding. So that also you should should take account when tailoring treatment. So when you're seeing a patient, then you have to think, does this patient need immediate treatment or which, which drug? Is it enough to give some antifibrolytics or you should do the DDAVP test or even make immediate infusion of factor concentrate or to start prophylaxis. So prophylaxis is possible. We have huge experience of prophylaxis in hemophilia, but not so much in Willebrand disease. And I would say just a part of patients with Willebrand disease really require prophylaxis. The majority of them are type 3 patients, but nevertheless, some type 2 patients or severe type 1 patients need prophylaxis. And the prophylaxis in Willebrand disease means really rather high treatment burden for our patients. So we want to make sure which patients will have um, will take the most from the prophylaxis disease. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that you know prophylaxis does add a layer of a treatment burden to patients, and certainly that is something that, as you mentioned, we're used to doing in hemophilia, but we haven't done it as much, certainly in the U.S. Um, compared to Europe. And I think that it's really now, especially with the newer guidelines coming out, the 2021 International Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Unwillebrand Disease, there's more a unified global perspective on the need for prophylaxis if it's warranted for an individual patient. So I think, just as you mentioned, having an open conversation with your patient and deciding, you know, what kind of bleeding symptoms you're having, how is it affecting your day-to-day life, here are the treatment options that are available, going all the way up to learning to infuse medications at home if they're having recurrent bleeding, things like gastrointestinal bleeding or joint bleeding, definitely those patients should be on prophylaxis. And so teaching them those infusion skills and really sometimes initiating that later in life, right? Because in hemophilia, a lot of patients with severe disease are in childhood. So the families learn early on. Sometimes we're, we're diagnosing people well into adulthood and the thought of them going their whole life with no real medical uh, expertise. And then we're asking them to infuse themselves by, you know, sticking a vein with a needle and giving intravenous medicine at home can be daunting. So, so yeah, I think it's definitely an individualized patient specific conversation to do prophylaxis, but it's needed. And sometimes, you know, not just 
like I mentioned, the joint disease. But if someone has like nosebleeds during certain parts of the year, maybe they need to do some preventative treatment just during the wintertime. Or maybe if it's a woman with heavy menstrual bleeding, she just needs to do treatment once a month or so. So it can definitely be individualized to your patient. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be constant prophylaxis, just in the cases when period before, once monthly before uh, menstrual period, or, or as you said, mentioned during the winter because of nosebleeds. But I think the problem with von Willebrand disease, it's hard to predict bleeding. So it's much easier in hemophilia because the problem is quite simple. You have just one factor missing and Willebrand factor has so many functions, so it's much uh, difficult to anticipate which patients will bleed in which situation. But what do you think about surgery? How do you approach if you have a patient with Willebrand disease that needs surgery? Yeah, I think, again, it, it's uh, specific on what the surgery is. If it's something very minor, say like, uh, well, I just had it in clinic the other day, um, a patient with mild type 1 von Willebrand disease that needed just dental fillings. So they're going to get some injection of some lidocaine probably to numb them up, pretty minimal risk. Their levels aren't too low. Maybe they're okay just with some antifibrinolytic therapy. And then if they have further bleeding, they could use the DDAVP that they have at home for a minor procedure like that. I think when we think about major surgery like open heart surgery or even, you know, a woman delivering a child, um, we want levels higher. And personally, I like to have better, uh, more predictable control of that. So those would be instances where I would be more inclined to use von Willebrand factor concentrate because I can give them a dose, I can follow their level in the hospital, and I can target whatever von Willebrand factor level is needed to be sure they get through surgery safely. So again, per the, the updated guidelines, usually for more minor things, having a level above 50% is usually okay. But a lot of times with our patients having more complex surgeries, I want the level over 100% so that I can ensure that if they have any bleeding, it's not because I didn't uh, raise their von Willebrand factor level high enough. But again, it's a very open conversation with the patient and the multidisciplinary team because the surgeon sometimes, uh, I'm sure you've encountered this as well, they don't want to even consider a patient for surgery because they're so terrified that yeah, the yeah. patient's going to bleed. And I try to reassure them and say, no, we can make their von Willebrand disease go away <laughs> with our treatments, but we just have to be mindful of monitoring. So. What about you? What do, how, how do you approach it? Yeah, I completely agree with you. What I think it's more ensuring for anesthesiologists and for the surgery to make a plan, so clear plan what to do and which time of the day, which hour, uh, when to administer factor, how to uh, measure factor, when to measure Willebrand factor, when to measure factor eight, and then additionally, so that might be a problem in a number of hospitals to call the laboratory and say, okay, we might need during the night or during the weekend the measurements of Willebrand factor and factor eight, so they know in advance. So we do not have to wait too long for the factor. And then to leave the phone number when the hematologist would answer if they have any questions. In that way, they feel much more secure and sure that, that the operation will end well. Yeah, absolutely. And then I guess kind of a final scenario to discuss would be, we've mentioned a little bit already, but women with von Willebrand disease having heavy menstrual bleeding. So Anna, do you see that more often in certain disease types? And what do you consider for kind of your first line treatment and beyond? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think it's, it's really important because lots of women with Willebrand disease have heavy menstrual bleeding. And on the other hand, lots of patients have been diagnosed because of the heavy menstrual bleeding. 
And I think the, the close collaboration with gynecologists is here crucial because they are the ones that should um, start with the first line treatment. So either oral hormone treatment or interuterine device, I think that's the way to go and the way to start. And then if that doesn't work, then I would include antifibrinolytics. That's usually it's working quite well. And I believe just one smaller part of the patient needs either DDIVP or a factor concentrate before menstrual bleeding. So I have a couple of patients that they're prone prophylactic treatment, but just once or twice monthly. So one or two infusions a month because of the heavy menstrual bleeding. And uh, then I always check for the iron levels. So to check if there are patients even checking iron levels before developing pseudopenic anemia, because then we need the iron stores are really missing. So regarding the disease type, I would say the type 3, uh, because there are no relevant factor and really low factor 8, would be the most commonly presented with a really heavy menstrual bleeding. But nevertheless, the other disease type can also be presented. What is additionally need to be discussed with the patient and with the gynecologist is pregnancy and planning on pregnancy, when to stop oral treatment, what to do when you stop oral hormonal treatment, how to follow patients through the pregnancy and then, and then delivery. What is your experience? Yeah, I mean, you raised some really great points. Very similar to what you describe. I think I can't emphasize enough the importance of the iron deficiency anemia treatment or even early iron deficiency. And it sounds like we both do that as well. Um, we see many patients with, you know, sometimes they're being referred to me for iron deficiency anemia. And then it turns out they really have undermanaged heavy menstrual bleeding. And then it turns out then we'll diagnose that they have von Willebrand disease. So I think that that's something that I think worldwide is uh, not recognized enough really is, is iron deficiency and to treat it before it gets to be severe iron deficiency anemia because it really can help with fatigue and cognitive functioning in school or work or, or parenting. You know, so I think that that's a very important point. Similarly, I have usually my more severe patients are the ones that we have considered for von Willebrand factor concentrate at the time of their periods. I guess in my experience, we've tried DDAVP for a few and and sounds like maybe you have some patients where that's helped. I've been less fortunate. My, my patients, it hasn't helped their menstrual bleeding as much. But I think uh, I do have a, a, a few patients with severe von Willebrand disease. But I also have a few patients that have mild type 1 von Willebrand disease that really have refractory menstrual bleeding. And some of these patients, maybe they don't want to use hormonal options for personal reasons or I've had one patient recently, they were afraid to use hormones to treat their heavy menstrual bleeding because they had family history of gynecologic cancers. And so they didn't want to have additional hormones in that regard. And so because of that, and they also had von Willebrand disease, we didn't use any hormonal therapy, but use antifibrinolytics and von Willebrand concentrate. And that really helped stop their excessive bleeding cycle as well. So I think it is something, again, you know, the patient has to be on board because it's a little bit more of a treatment burden with the at-home infusions, but definitely can be helpful. So um, I, I would agree. More commonly in the more severe types, type twos and threes, severe type ones, but it can happen with any, any patient. So I think um, as we're getting uh, closer here to the end, you know, thanks, uh, Anna, it's a, a really uh, good uh, discussion today. Provides me reassurance that though we're on other ends of the world, we're, we're doing uh, things very similarly. And actually, I guess, gives me some more confidence that 
I think we as a, a global community are, are doing better. We have still work to do, but I think we're doing better in our management of patients with fun wall brand disease. So I'll just give a few, you know, key takeaways and then and I'd love to hear, um, you know, from you. I think, you know, we've talked today about different types of unwell brand disease that even though maybe VWD is a certain diagnosis, there's many subtypes and the bleeding can vary quite a bit from patient to patient. Um, we reviewed, you know, different uh, treatment options uh, that patients can use and talked about some complex scenarios that patients may encounter and how, uh, you know, we as clinicians may manage that. Again, I think Anna's your point of iron deficiency is very important. And, and really, I think that having that kind of shared decision making with an individual patient on, you know, here are all the treatment options that are available. Here's what we can do to treat your bleeding and continue to have an ongoing dialogue so that we're helping our patients, not just seeing them once a year or how often they come for a regular checkup, but encouraging them to contact their treatment center and help us really to tailor therapy so that they're really optimizing their treatment and minimizing the disease burden on themselves. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you, I think you summed it up perfectly. I would like just to end with one sentence that although we see the von Willebrand disease, it's quite difficult to recognize, difficult to diagnose. Treatment is possible. So we have a couple of very good treatments. Patients do not have to bleed. Just if we raise awareness about the disease, I think it can be really managed in a very good way. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank you all for listening. It was a great discussion and goodbye. This Hemostasis Connect podcast was brought to you by CourtoEd Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select Hemostasis.